I hear if you pay $8 a month, like you're exempt from getting burned at the stake. So that's true. You know. That's true. Subscribe to not die. Based on what you know about Hanson and I, what would you use to describe us if we have to be keyboards? Oh, dude, that's a great question. Okay, man, I'm, I got to be careful not to offend you guys here. You know, like this, is, <laughs> this podcast go completely different way if I do. Um, I'm already offended. <laughs> Gotta try again. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. Seed, I think, you know, a lot of the times uh, you can be very like uh, succinct, right? You're going to say hi to someone. It's like, how's life, right? That's that's kind of it. So I would say, Seed, you would probably be like a 60% keyboard, you know, um, <laughs> you know, kind of short to the point, has everything you need. That's also how his wife describes him to me. Exactly. <laughs> that's why I keep telling them shoulder is better. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, look, like, hey, six- we're the same height. So I'm just, I'm self burning here. <laughs> Um, six person keyboards, you know, they have layers. So seed, you got layers, I'm sure, you know, like there's layers to like see. So yes. yeah, I think so you're, you're calling me both fat and short. <laughs> what else? Sh- Shrek like maybe. No, I'm just playing, man. I'm playing. <laughs> um, and then I guess for, for Hanson, um, Hanson, I feel like, you know, you're, you're, I mean, this is true for seed too, but like you're, you're really a go getter, you know, you want, you want everything. So maybe you would be kind of like on the other end, right? Like the more maximal type of keyboard, maybe like a yeah, 1800 layout, right? Ooh. Just kind of bigger, has all the keys. 1800, like 1800 buttons? No, it has about 96 keys. There, there was like an old retro keyboard that was made by Cherry, who's like a, a huge, like old school company who's made keyboards for forever. And they had one keyboard layout called the G80 1800. So now when people refer that layout they can refer to 1800. Nice. Andrew, welcome to the show. Today we're talking with Andrew Kanan, uh, who is an excellent software engineer, uh, someone I used to work with, and is now the founder and CEO of Canon Keys, which is a familiar name to everybody who's a keyboard enthusiast. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks, Hanson. Thanks, Seed. Thanks for having me. So Kanan is one of the most comprehensive, detail-oriented engineers I work with. I remember earlier days, he started Canon Keys as the as a side project, and it's super super amazing to witness to go to be a multi-million dollar business. And now he's doing this full time. Super grateful he's on our show, uh, and looking forward to chat with you more. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Seed. Very gracious in your words, man. Like I wouldn't describe myself as one of the most detail-oriented engineers. I mean, at, at Clavio, I feel like we worked with a lot of brilliant people, and I would not even rank myself in the tops of all the engineers we worked with. Just it was a great experience for me, and really happy for it. And I, I think that being at Clavio also influenced the start of Canon Keys. But I'm sure we'll get into that more later. Yeah. So, Kanan, I'm curious. We know your story at Clavio, and we know that Canon Keys is this sensation in the industry. But where does the Canon story? begin? Where do you come from? What's your background? Okay. Yeah. That's a great question. So, um, I think a a great place to start is like my upbringing, right? For those who don't know, I'm half Indian and half Chinese. So definitely Asian parents on both sides. Cultures are different, but lots of shared values there. A lot of emphasis on academics, a lot of emphasis on doing well in school, things like that. My, My parents wanted the best for me. Growing up, I also, I have four siblings as well. So I'm the eldest of five children. I feel like I probably had it the hardest growing up. The first kid always does. And coming into my career and everything, I just wanted to set a good example for the rest of my siblings as well. And they're knocking it out of the park. I'm really proud of them, but I'm glad I could be first and and trailblaze in that way. I grew up in a suburb of DC. So the suburb I grew up in is called Bethesda, Maryland. I was actually born in Arizona, but we moved to Maryland when I think I was about five years old and then lived in Maryland ever since. Went to elementary, middle, high school there. Went to University of Maryland, go Terps. And then after that, I um, I started my career at Microsoft. Started out at Microsoft. After Microsoft, was there for about four and a half to five years and then decided to move back to the East Coast. And yeah, I landed at Clavio. And that's where you guys entered my story. And that's where Canon Keys was first incepted as well. Yeah, I want to dig in a little bit before diving into the Clavio and Gallon Keys more. But like you said, your parents are Chinese and Indian, mm-hmm. stereotypically the most strict parents you can ever come up with. Any fun stories? Define fun. <laughs> Just- yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I, I can talk about something I definitely regret growing up, sure. which I think growing up in like a mixed ethnicity home, right? Our, the language at home is English, right? My mom, she speaks three different languages, including English. My dad also speaks at least three different languages, including English. But the only language that they shared was English. So growing up at home, we spoke English. Both of my parents thought it was really important for me to learn Mandarin. 
Hmm. But, you know, me being like the little kid I was and, and not knowing any better, it, it's not cool to you know try to l- learn Mandarin when you're like this little American kid, right? Culturally gr- growing up, I was very much trying to be like American, right? I think that's very common for folks who are born in the States. Like you have your Asian identity, but you also want to be American. Right. Um, so uh, I, I went to a Chinese school for a few years to try to learn it. But at a certain point, I just wasn't putting the effort in. My parents warned me like, hey, you're going to re- regret this in the future. But I didn't listen. Right. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. So if anyone is kind of listening and you're I don't know, a teenager or something. I definitely regret it. I wish I learned Mandarin. Now, if I try to pick it up, it's going to be way harder. Who knows? It, it, it comes. It really comes in handy, especially if you're running an e-commerce business. I'll tell you that much. I was going to say, if you um, want to yell at yeah. your suppliers, that uh, comes in pretty handy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's not just that, too. Some of our, like, for a lot of our suppliers, we'll talk to them over like WeChat and we kind of have to rely on Google Translate or WeChat Translate to get fill in the gaps for us. So it's been a really interesting experience, but that is definitely one of my biggest regrets from childhood. Here, here's a follow-up question. What'd you do for fun growing up? Did you have like hobbies you got really deep into, any crazy stuff you've done that would be surprising to people? I, I think a lot of my hobbies were aligned around computers. And that's probably where like my love for computer science came from and how my affinity for keyboards also got started. I remember like in first grade, I made an email account. My, my parents, I was lucky enough to have internet access and my parents helped me set it up and everything. And I was always like just really interested in computers and technology. And I remember trying to pick up programming languages when I was in middle school and, and doing things like that. I do think that a lot of my hobbies aligned towards kind of computers, right? Like playing video games. When you're a kid growing up in the 90s, who didn't, right? Um, What were your games? My games? Oh, so my first ever video game was Kirby's Dreamland on the Game Boy. So that that game holds a fond place in my heart. Pokemon games, man, every everyone at the playground was trading Pokemon, talking about their Pokemon games. I remember the accomplishment of catching all 150 Pokemon. That's definitely something that happened. Even to this day, I'll still play video games, right? It's one of my hobbies. I feel like a lot of like the time intensive hobbies, keyboards was like the time intensive hobby and that turned into a job, right? With keyboards dominating so much now, like when I do have time for myself, a lot of the times I, I find myself going back to those video games, right? I was also an avid swimmer growing up. What about uh, entrepreneurship? Is this something that, is this really your first foray into entrepreneurship or has it been something that's been a theme since earlier? I Honestly, I think it's really my first major foray into entrepreneurship. I mean, I've I've done things in the past like oh, there's like a t-shirt design. Let me like run a group buy for it and I'll get a bunch of people collect their money. But it was never for like profit or to like really establish a business or anything. But yeah, I I always knew I wanted to start a business. I think that was one of kind of like my career goals, especially moving away from Microsoft and trying to start my own thing. But I never thought it was going to be e-commerce. I always thought it was going to be like a software as a service, right? Because when you're a developer, that's kind of what you do. And when I joined Klaviyo, like, part of my goals there were to like pick up the skills it would take to start a software as a service business. Here we are, like I'm running an e-com and it's not quite the same. So yeah. But where does it come from? Because you made it sound simple, like you want to, you always want you to start your own business, but that's not really common, right? It's common for us because we're in this bubble that everybody wants to start our own company. But uh, where where did that, uh, did that spark come from? I haven't thought about this in depth, really. I, you know, I, I think it's kind of, you know, just to, to try to see if you can kind of make it on your own, right? Can I do something that's going to add enough value that like people are willing to pay for it? I think it, it's like a personal challenge, right? Do I have the skills to do that? I think that's probably where it comes from. Just to, I want the challenge, right? I want to try to challenge myself. And, and like, I think one of the reasons why I'm not like upset that I didn't start a software as a service company is because, oh, there, there are plenty of challenges at Canon Keys and, you know, we're constantly feeling uh, challenged. And that's where growth comes from, right? That's where you have the opportunity to learn more, develop more skills. So I worked for four and a half years at Microsoft, right? It was a great job, but Microsoft is so big that it's easy to get lost. Like you're given like, this is your job to do and you do it. And as long as you're doing that job, like everyone's happy. But it felt like I was doing the job, I was learning, I was all that stuff, but like the pace just wasn't the same or what I wanted. As I was deciding to move back east, I, I kind of figured, you know what, I really want to target something smaller, right? And pick up some of those skills it would take for me to start my own thing and then have that challenge, right? Makes sense. Yeah. So after you graduated from high school, you went to uh, Maryland, mm-hmm. which is a very good school. What did you pick computer science? 
When I was picking colleges, I wasn't really sure what my major was going to be. I was like, oh, maybe I want to go to study economics or maybe I want to do biology. But looking back at it, like computer science was definitely the major for me. But why Clavio? What brought you to Clavio? That's, a, that's another good question. Again, I was targeting companies in the anywhere from 30 to 200 employees, that like target range, right? And I think I got, at the end of everything, I got two final offers. So it, it basically came down to like two companies and one company, I forget what it's even called, but they had a satellite office in Boston where I was gonna have to work. And then there was Clavio, which was headquartered in Boston. So that definitely played into it. The fact that one was like headquartered very much like Boston first company. If you ever talk to Andrew Bielecki at Clavio, he loves Boston, right? That was one of the companies. The other company was, oh, Boston's just like this thing that we do. So that, that played into it. But I think more than that, like Clavio, first, I got to talk to a lot of people at Clavio. You know, they definitely feel like did the hard sell. I think AB sent me a book in the mail or something. And like the other company didn't do that. So. Mm. That's like a leg up. But at the time, Clavio was also profitable and they weren't afraid to share that. And I think that's very rare to find in a small software startup with so many just chasing users and taking on VC. I chose Clavio because I felt like, oh, wow, like it's already profitable. They want me there. They're offering challenges. Like they're telling me all the right things that I want to hear about, like how I'm going to learn and grow. So, right. You're investing in yourself there. Exactly. Right. I also poke this a little bit. So I joined, I think year after you or a few months after you? I think I joined in okay. February 2017. Is that okay? Right? So a few months yeah. after, yeah, a few months after you. So kind of a similar scale in terms of where Clavio is at. Yeah. And uh, one of the big reasons for me is AB really sold it to me. Oh right? yeah. There's a crazy dude who just has the insurmountable um, passion drive about e-commerce for whatever reason, right? <laughs> so I wonder for you, what's the percentage if you have a sign, is because of the CEO of the company. I certainly didn't talk to the CEO of the other company, I'll tell you that much. Like, I, I, it definitely played into the decision. If I had to assign a percentage to it, I don't think it was as high as 50%, because I think the company itself was offering a lot of those things, and kind of AB was a messenger to tell me those things. But it definitely played into it. Maybe like 30%, like, it's still significant, yeah. I think the fact that he invests time in that might be like a founder life hack kind of thing. Like it really, I think, plays a role in attracting really good talent. Yeah, I think for the longest time, like AB wanted to know like every single person working at Clavio. And I, I, of course you can't do that as a company scales, but I definitely think it it paid off. I think it definitely can be like a founder life hack, if, especially if you're having like trouble landing people or recruiting, like absolutely. That's the CEO's job, right? Like it's to convince the best people to work at the company. It's part of it, yeah. Okay, jumping to the next question. So like I said, you start. I know you started Canon Keys as a side project. We were mm -hmm. working at Clavio and it grew to be this pretty awesome business that is well known in the industry. Where did this idea come from initially? Because that's not a pretty obvious thing to start. Yeah, I, I think that similar to how I got into computer science, it's like when you see something and, and I, I kind of wanted to make something of my own, right? Again, like I alluded to it before, I couldn't find something cheap enough. So I was like, oh, I'll just spend my time. <laughs> So this is the ortholinear keyboard thing. Yeah, this is the ortholinear okay. thing. But before that, I think I just wanted the best keyboard for myself, right? Like it started as like, a, I, I want this thing for the hobby. And then because I wanted to try ortholinear and it was expensive, I was like, I don't want to pay that. I'll just spend two weeks picking up all the skills that it's going to take to, <laughs> to do that. In retrospect, just like paying for it would have made more sense in terms of the time versus value. But it was also enjoyable for me to learn how to build those things, right? And I think that's where it came from, just... I didn't have to decide I wanted to learn how to do these things, but there was that like kind of curiosity or, oh, I don't want to pay that. You know, so some of it comes from that, right? But yeah, I think that's where it came from. It was just, oh, I think I could figure this out and then actually doing it. And then once you build your first, this is like circuit boards, right? Like I had to learn how to design circuit boards for keyboards. Yeah. Once I did my first, it's, oh man, that was fun. Oh, I got this thing to work. What else can I do? I expanded from there. I get that feeling. So this is, so I have an Etsy store. Basically I started like 3D printing things and I'm like, oh man, like I really want to have this, like my favorite character and just like as my desk art, basically 3D printed out and it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody who sells even the model of it. And then I was like, there must be a way. So I like 
figured out the way to make it. And then I was like, I bet someone else be happy to pay a price for this because I would have been. And then that became a little thing. But it never yeah, scaled, exactly. right? There, there's some something inherent about like the labor intensiveness and the fickleness of 3D print that makes yeah. it not very scalable. But I think it's a little bit similar to that story. We've dabbled a bit with 3D printing and it's, you're right, it is fickle. Yes. <laughs> like it, you never know it's it, when it's going to work and when it's not. And I'm sure there are ways you can tune it and make it a lot better, but we just haven't had the time yet. I wish I'm more like a real engineer. Like one thing I admire about you, Hanson, and also Chris, which is another, who's another friend of us, who can really like dig into hands-on stuff, like carpentry, 3D printing, keyboards. Yeah. yeah. I much enjoy like abstract stuff, thinking basically. Yeah. What's I, it like? I, I, I do to think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is it like? I do think for me, there's something nice about getting a physical product at the end too. Cause yeah. so much of what, especially when you work on software, so much of what you do is not physical. So I right. think for me, it was like, it was also different. And I think I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I ju I'm just like inundated with um, distributed system too much. It's all about thinking through virtual parts, how to put them together. All your, mental together. all your mental cycles are just spent there. Yeah. Kanan, what's your favorite memory about Canon key so far. Oh, dude, it's it's got to be. Um, I think when we first, I, I've, I've over the years, you would think my favorite memory of Canon keys would change, right? And and, and I I think it, it might, right? I think I have a lot more favorite memories than before. One that comes to mind that's like a little bit more recent is we held a meetup this year, mm. and as part of the meetup, we got almost all of our team members to come to our facility in Rhode Island, and we could all be a team together in person, and that was like the first time. You could actually see the whole team in one place, minus one person. It was really sad he couldn't make it. But that's definitely one of like my top memories at Canon Keys. Uh, we've been working to build this company. And, and now, now look, you know, we have all these folks <laughs> who are working towards just getting these keyboards out there. And everyone is so excited about all the stuff that we're doing. And to be able to share it with the team is really fun. That's super cool. So, yeah. When you were saying, oh, it's got to be something. And then you were like, oh, there's a more recent one. W was there an original story you were going to tell? Yeah, so I think before this year, like before this meetup, I think our my my favorite memory was when we shipped out our first custom designed keyboard. The it's called the Satisfaction 75. It's the one that sort of put us on the map, I think. It's the one that I'm using now with the 75% with the knob in the screen. Just to pour so much like time and effort into building this thing and like also money, right? Like the thousands of dollars you spend on prototyping cuz I the first one you do, you're never going to nail the prototype the first time definitely had to go through multiple rounds of thousand dollar prototyping for the satisfaction 75 but actually shipping those out and getting like people actually receiving them and being excited about it and building it and liking it i think that has got to be one of my top three memories as well like yeah, the, moment, the first one right yeah. you're like your brainchild comes to life and finds the customers and delivers that delight that you probably have been thinking about for a long time in your head but that becomes real Exactly. Cool. What would have happened if it like people got it and they're like, oh, this is crap. I would have been way different. So I that to me is just the way it was received. The fact that we were able to kind of ship them all out. And these folks, I think it was the original group buy, I think was 200 units or something in that kind of ballpark. So the fact that 200 people wanted to buy it, they got it. And then it was liked by most of them who got it was really special. Yeah, I actually want to dig into that a little bit. So your two most favorite memories. Mm -hmm. Or one of the experience of delivering something you've worked really hard on and getting that positive feedback from people, right? People enjoying your hard work. And then of the team, right? The people mm -hmm. you work together so hard with. I kind of wonder what about entrepreneurship is the most satisfying aspect to you? Because earlier you were saying, hey, I like the challenge. Yeah. Right. It's learning. It's about learning. And but to one end is the ultimate. If you were to write a function, a mathematical function of maximizing your satisfaction out of entrepreneurship, what is it that drives mm -hmm. you there? Is it to do this over and over to be like, hey, look, I've built a hundred things and people loved every single one of them. Or is it like I have this amazing team of people I love working with? What is it? Dude, that's a really great question, too. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of everything. And on top of that, it's also like the competitive nature of it as well. It's a challenge to get a company to land and grow your business, even in the face of downward market conditions. If you can do it and your competitors can't, that's fun, right? At least for me, that's yeah. really fun. I think I do derive some enjoyment out of it. And like, you know, I, I, we're, we're friendly with all of our competitors as well, right? But I still want to outcompete, right? I want <laughs> to do it like the right to way, win. but I still want to outcompete, right? Yeah. You so, want to watch them suffer. 
Yeah. I, I don't want to watch. That resonate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to watch them suffer. I just want to do better than them. And then on top of that, I think building the team plays into it, right? Seeing all these folks who are like now all oriented towards this goal is really cool to see. And then also putting keywords out there, putting products out there that people enjoy, adding value in that way. That also contributes to it. It's hard to eat how much is what, right? It, you have to take it as a whole, right? And I think that's, to me, like, there, I don't think there's many places where you can get all of that in one, right? Starting your own business or being an entrepreneur is you're going to have to do all of those things and you're going to feel all those things. And I think that's what makes it appealing too. The hours cool. are long, but I don't really care because it's fun. It's fun. And I, I do, you know, derive, um, you know, utility out of it or you know, I, I get satisfaction from it. So what's your worst memory about Canon Keys? Oh, dude. So I was talking about Satisfaction 75 and how it was one of my best memories, right? Satisfaction 75, we decided to run it a second time because there was a lot of latent demand after the first time, right? So I had built this piece of software along with a contractor that was supposed to slowly let people into buy the product, excuse me, slowly let people into the, to buy the product after they were like sitting in a queue, right? And there was a bug. So again, I should have known better, right? Like I built distributed systems as part of my job at Clavio, but I think what did me in was I didn't expect the level of demand that we actually had. You so, Taylor Swifted yourself. The, exactly. The way it manifested to customers was like, they'd be in the queue and then it would look like they were getting through and then be, they'd be taken to a blank screen and the URL would say canonkeys.com slash null. It was like, they didn't even get feedback that like something was wrong, right? It was just a blank screen and they're like, oh, do I keep waiting or what's going on? The root cause of that was a, uh, a Redis issue. I ran out of connections on our Redis. And if it happened that- Fowdy scripters? What's up? Not no, okay. so I was on Heroku. So Heroku like artificially caps the number of connections that can hit a given Redis, depending on how much you're paying for the Redis. And we thought we were good based on the volume that we had and the number of workers we had up. And then I spun up more workers without remembering that, hey, Redis has this connection limit. And if it so happened that your checkout was supposed to be made on one of the workers that couldn't talk to Redis, you would get the null screen. And now, now that was pretty bad, but... I think the part that made it worse was how I reacted to it, which was I went into like our public discord and I made a statement that was like, hey, guys, I know there was an issue, but it was still fair. So we're not going to do anything about it. And that's definitely not what people wanted to hear. And the just the vitriol and the hate and because it's the Internet, right? Like everyone's anonymous. They're just going to spout whatever they want. The vitriol, the hate, it was worse than I've ever experienced. But look, this was like easy mode, apparently, because some of the folks we have working for us in customer support, they were telling us stories about when they were working at Riot, when Valorant launched. Oh, so no. they have seen sort of like <laughs> what we experienced, like Anna, so Anna, my wife and I, we're the only ones like running the company at that point. They've felt what we experienced to an extreme. And to, uh, to me, that's already the worst memory. I can only imagine what those guys had to go through. I have a lot of respect for our customer support team. The rock stars, great. And they, they've, they've handled a lot and they're way better at it than I am. So your biggest issue or like your most painful memory was caused by basically your own success. I mean, the failure to anticipate <laughs> said success. It was, I wouldn't say it was just that. It was also like fumbling the PR or not saying the right thing. Like, right, right. sure, what I said was technically correct, but no one wanted to hear that, right. right? If you just sat in a queue for 30 minutes on a blank screen, like you don't want to hear that it was still fair. Yeah. You, you want someone to be like, I'm sorry it happened to you. Like... It was absolutely the wrong thing to say, and I definitely learned from that. And now we have a customer support team. If something like that does come up, they can help me figure out the right messaging, right? We don't have a PR team. We're not big enough. But uh, again, these these guys, they're, they're experienced. They've, they've done a lot in customer support, and they have a good sense of like how to make customers happy. Right. I hope their, uh, their health insurance is good. They can get some therapy. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, hey, we, we, we try to take care of our employees too. I think that's another thing that I've taken away from Clavio. You try to take care of the folks who are working for you and to the best of your ability. And I think that's really important to, to me and also Anna and also Mark, who's the other member of our leadership team. We want to be a great employer. Nice. So, yeah. Well, we're jumping to the next section pretty soon. But before that, we always ask our, our guest this question. So now you are a young, successful entrepreneur, uh, awesome engineer. What is success to you? To me, success is like 
can I live comfortably, right? Can, can, can my wife and I, can my family live comfortably? Uh, are goals being met? Can we do the things that we want to do within reason? To me, that's success, right? So Everything you made else it. is kind of just bonus. Yeah, so I, you already I kinda, made it. I feel like, yeah. And what still drives you then? Why do you want to still grow your business? And the better question going? is, what do you drive now? I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have a Ford Fiesta. So, oh, it's a uh, sick car, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, it's, it's not a Ferrari. Yeah. I, I think what still drives me, I guess, again, it's just like the challenge. I want to, I want to do better, right? Yeah. Sure. I'm comfortable, but what more can I do? It, it, it's the competition as well, right? Harkening back to like, why are the reasons, what are good things about being entrepreneurs? It's, it's the competition as well, right? I think a lot of that drives me for better, or for worse, right? And also just to see how far we can take this, you know, like how far can we get? And then on top of that too, like, I truly believe that no one needs a mechanical keyboard. But it's a really nice thing to have. So I, I truly believe we can make that a little bit more accessible and bring more people into the hobby. Can add a little bit of joy to everyone's like everyday life, right? Is it a necessity? Absolutely not. But it is a fun thing and exposing more people to it, letting people pick out their things. I think that's fun, right? I'd love to see Canon keys take over the world. I'd, like there are so many desks in the world, so many keyboards that are not mechanical yet. It would be so cool if like kids grow up in the next generation and they're like, they don't know what a mechanical keyboard is. They just know what a Canon keys is. And every knockoff is just called Canon keys because it's like the Kleenex to keyboards. That's that, that would be very ambitious. That's the dream. If we get there, I'm, I would be shocked. There, there's no, <laughs> I, I don't see any way we could ever get there. Or either but, that, or you, you yeah. become such an aspiration, right? You're like the Leica of keyboards that everybody just like, not everybody can afford a Canon keys, but everybody wants a Canon keys. That'd be really cool. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. We invite you back to the podcast to do a recap. But yeah, that should be your tagline. Nobody needs a mechanical keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's the episode name. But, yeah. No, but the uh, last thing I would say about this is it's pretty interesting to observe this duality, right? Because on one hand, you are satisfied. You think you are already successful and made it, right? That's yeah. That you're, you're content with your life, but you still have this drive. You still want more. You still want the challenge, right? So that's a very yeah. interesting duality uh, it's, of perspective. Isn't it like a hierarchy of needs kind of thing? That the very top is if everything else is stable, like you, you want like uh, more, right? You want fulfillment or whatever. So self-actualization, I, I think is that's what uh, yeah. So that yeah. I guess that's what it is, right? Um, so I guess there's probably an element of that as well, right? It's just seeing how much you can get done, how much you can do. I think yeah. that definitely helps, or that definitely helps yeah. drive me to keep going. Cool. Cool. On that note, I'm going to move us over to the next section. Deep questions. Kanan, you ready to get Let's deep? Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. Should we reach out to aliens? Well, I mean, first, we have to establish that aliens exist, right? Okay. Uh, the universe is such a big place. In, in my opinion, I think it's probably likely that aliens exist, right? Whether they're humanoid or whatever, probably not. But maybe, I, I think life probably exists, right? Or that might look like. Should we reach out? That's a great question. If aliens do exist, I guess another good follow-on question is like, how come we haven't heard about aliens that exist? Right? Uh, I think, yeah, you know. The that, Fermi paradox. Yes, exactly, right? Is that the thing where if they did exist and there wasn't some sort of like catastrophic event, we would have heard from them already? Yeah, so my understanding of the Fermi paradox is where is everyone? That's basically it. Like if the universe mm -hmm. is so big and full of everything, where is everybody? Why haven't yeah. we already heard from aliens? And yeah. there are several leading theories around it. Like I, off the top of my head, there's one that's the grape filter, which says mm -hmm. that civilizations all develop. And at some point, for whatever reason, that's not yet clear to us, there is an event that stops them from developing any further to the point where they can really communicate and like colonize the stars. And some theories are around like, you know, nuclear conflicts or some level of, if you get advanced enough, you also become unstable enough that you could destroy yourself. Right. Or maybe there's a natural event we're not even aware of yet, like a huge gamma ray burst that wipes out life every two million years or something. Man, it's it's fun to think about. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my framing of Fermi Paradox is always there's so much. If the uh, soil to generate intelligent life is resource and time, seems like universe has abundance of that, right? So mm -hmm. like you said, where is everyone? I have a theory I believe in. I think, I think it's because we are egotistic. We are too human centric. So we are always looking for something look like us. I think aliens are everywhere. Naturally, we just don't look close enough. I mean, I think Adams is a, is a is type of alien, 
right? It's a great mystery why you put a bunch of atoms together, they behave in a uniform way. Where does that come from, right? Is that something alien to us? I think it is, right? I think we are so tunnel visioned into find some, something like us as a life form. We're basically just ignoring the obvious aliens around us. Oh, that's an interesting take. Yeah, we consider life like something organic that has carbon in it, right? And and like yeah. um, moves, right? Or or you know, even single cells will move or divide or replicate or whatever. But yeah, maybe there is something else that's like a lifelike pattern that we just don't know to look for. I think that's a really interesting take. I think but, I even push that further. I think yeah. the Fermi paradox is about intelligent life, right? So yeah. why we have an intelligent life. I would say we are so human centric to think we are the only intelligent form of life, right? So mm -hmm. not just life, but I would argue virus or down to atoms is very intelligent. It's very intelligent that it can find a way to survive without being complicated. For me, that's the best way to survive. So, so, so we're yeah. defining intelligence from like a very human centric point of Correct. view, right? Mm -hmm. So who is to say that like a, a virus's survival mechanism is not intelligence in its own way? I think I, I can see where you're coming from. That's yeah. pretty interesting because, Seed, you're basically challenging the two fundamental assumptions that most people make about this question, right? The Fermi paradox, where is, quote unquote, everyone? Everyone in the sense I think most people would think of as alien life, specifically alien civilizations, right? Like, where is everyone? But the two points you're making is, one, what is alien? Is alien just like things that are different from us? And how different could that be? And two is what is life, right? Because by the classical definition, viruses are not alive. Because yeah. the textbook definition in biology, according to the whatever, the biology cabal, right, that makes this rule, the definitions are one, it has to it has to be an organic state that can grow, that react to stimuli, and that reproduce. Viruses are just a shell wrapping a piece of DNA or RNA. So they don't really react to stimuli and they can't reproduce on their own and they certainly don't grow. They're not considered alive. And by your definition, right, maybe there's a broader definition of life and that is out there. But I remember seeing an old comic of basically a, an astronaut, like a human astronaut who like landed on a foreign, like an alien planet and planted a flag and said, there's no signs of life here, right? Radioing back home. And then the whole planet has a face that was just like, what are you talking about? Kind of reminds me of that. I mean, I mean, for me, and I think Canon in computer science, you would resonate. For me, life is the intention to pass on a message, right? So that's it, right? Like, I don't think we should, uh, to be so tunnel visioned that we have to find, oh, there's metabolism, there is, uh, you know, this DNA structure. That, that's not the fundamental thing, I think, to pass on the message. And your first point is especially interesting to me, right? Because one word that we call foreign people in the United States is alien. Right. Right. And as Chinese, we often say, even in the United States, we often call them Ren, lao wai, right? Which means the foreign, right? So even we are in the United States, from our perspective, they are the aliens, <laughs> right? And I, I think that that applies to, to Fermi paradox in, in a weird way, which is we, we are looking for someone who's so foreign to us but we are probably the foreign one. So, yeah. And yeah, like, for example, like intelligent life could exist, right? But we could just not know what to look for, right? Maybe there's evidence of intelligent life already that's readily available that we can look for, but it's just like, we can't extract the signal, right? Right. What if there's some sort of alien temporal being that like, space-time is a thing, right? What if they can play with time more than we can, right? We move linearly through time, right? No, we're talking about, if, like, talking about like beings, right? Not even like right. life as we know it. Yeah, but if it's intelligent, right, and technically be life, right? So I get where seed is coming from. I could imagine that something like that exists, right? So I want to poke on this. So let's imagine this kind of broader definition of life. There might be different levels of intelligence, quote unquote intelligence. Should we reach out to them? Should we put out a message to try to uh, make connections? Yeah, right. Back to the original question. So. I don't know. I, I can see pros and cons, right? I think the biggest con is like, oh, what if you reach out to the intelligent life and then it wants to kill you? Like now you're on its radar and it's like, all right, I got to eliminate these because they might eliminate us in the future, right? There's definitely a potential for that, right? And I think if you read enough sci-fi and watch enough movies, like there's stories of that happening, right? So 
that's a huge con. But on the pro side, it's like, what if they're friendly? What if they're friendly and they can give us the technology to like solve world hunger, right? Is it worth reaching out? Is it worth the risk? I don't know. I think personally, probably lean on the side of we probably shouldn't reach out just because th think about it, right? It could be the end of like humans as we know it, right? If it ends up being the wrong thing. And then even if you have the technology to solve world hunger, we're still humans. I don't know if I have faith in like all of humanity to be able to handle that sort of technology. If you look at how things have gone over the course of history, it's humans trying to take advantage of each other. So who's to say the first people to like contact these aliens, get this technology and then just use it to keep it for themselves. And they're never hungry, but everyone else always is. And they use that as a method of control. I don't know. For me, I think I'm less trusting and sort of like the... Our, our, our species capability to use these things as a whole for good than maybe others might be. And it's funny because I'm usually like an optimist, but I, I think this is a very kind of like cynical take, but yeah, I, actually, I think that's where I would land. I think that's a really good point because if you do the ROI math, right? What's the best case scenario? They fix world hunger. We can colonize the stars. Humanity spreads across the galaxies, right? We're talking about right. billions of planets colonized by humans, right? We get to play this out and it's going to be this amazing thing that was a quantum leap from our existence today. Amazing. The ROI would be billions to one. Right. right. But the ROI of us losing would be division by zero, which would be infinite. Right. right? Because we'd be right. dead. All of us. So you would argue that infinite loss is greater than any potential gain that we could get from contacting aliens. I think so. If you frame it that way, it actually is quite rational, right? It's not necessarily pessimistic. It's just, I'm thinking here like, oh, even the positives might not be used the right way, but yeah, like the negatives are just so negative. They're infinitely negative that it would always outweigh any sort of positive outcome. But maybe we're just not thinking about, maybe the positive outcomes are like infinitely good as well. You never know. Yeah, so there's actually a, another hypothesis to solve the Fermi paradox. There's many, right? Because that question's been proposed and then a bunch of smart people got to work about like coming up with a theory, right? That seems rational. And one of the more recent ones is called the dark forest hypothesis. Have you read the book or I don't know, maybe they're making a show about this. It's called the three body problem. No, but it's on my short list of things to read. Then I will I not describe this because it is described in the book and is a spoiler alert to like describe the solution, but it's sort oh, of, I don't explains. mind. You can, you can, you can still explain it because I also feel like even if I, you know how there's like this research study that's, oh, spoilers actually can increase your enjoyment of consuming media. So I'm all for it, man. Go ahead and give me the spoiler. All right. You asked for it. So there's a great short video on the YouTube channel, Kurzgesagt, which just means simply told in German. So they animate this. And they're much better at ex explaining than this than I am going to be. But here's the general idea, right? First, this is a discipline, hypothetical discipline in the book called, I think, cosmic sociology. So okay. like, how would different species as a quote unquote society behave around each other? What are some predictions we can make about that? And then you have to make a few core assumptions. One, every civilization's number one priority is survival. That's not that hard to believe, right? Right. Okay. That's rule number one. So remember that. That comes before anything else. What's the second? Most civilizations that become interplanetary and interstellar tend to be expansionist. They're the ones that took over their home environment and was like right. the most invasive. They're not the type to make peace and just live where they are. They're not happy. They're, they want to expand. I think I see where this is going. Yeah. Right, right. And so it's kind of like, you know, humans, right? We are one of the most expansionist creatures. I guess if you count microbes, they're very expansionist. But like we took over every continent, even mm -hmm. before what we would call the dawn of civilization, right? Even as apes, we were just OP, right? And then I think another one is basically what they call like the, the skepticism chain or something, depending on how you translate it. So essentially imagine the interaction between two planets that just discovered each other, right? One planet basically sends out a radio beacon that's hello. Mm -hmm. And the other side hears this signal. Civilization B hears from civilization A and knows where they are. Now, they could be friendly and say something back and say hi, right? Now, right. if you did that, things travel at the speed of light. The closest right. possible planets that would be to each other would be decades, sometimes hundreds of light years away, right? Another assumption I forgot to mention is technological explosions. So technology mm -hmm. tends to develop in nonlinear ways. So it's very hard to predict, but even if right. your civilization was ahead of the other one right now, by the time the signal bounces back 200 years later, you have no idea if they're gonna be technologically advanced, more advanced than you. So- That's scary. Right, yeah. so civilization B hears from civilization A, 
and they appear to be harmless and to be of a similar technological level, then your choices are to either make peace with them, talk back, and then wait another hundred years and hope that they're friendly, or you could strike first. Right. Before their technology gets out of control. Because you don't know what they're going to be like in 100 years. You don't know what kind of right. political party would be in charge over there. You can't guarantee that they're going to stay benevolent and harmless. So basically, it's a smarter thing than what I just described. But the only logical conclusion to that, if survival is the most important thing and you believe that technology explodes nonlinearly, then your only viable option is to strike them with a weapon that is as close to the speed of light as possible such that they have very little time to react and it better wipe them out completely so that they have no chance of sh striking you back. That's a very eloquent summary. I'm a huge fan of the book. I've read it like quite a few times in both Chinese and English. To recap this kind of three bullet points more succinctly as laid out in the novel, it's basically saying all life desire to stay alive, right? Mm -hmm. Then uh, there is no way to know if other life forms can or will destroy you, right? And right. third assumption is lacking assurance, Hansen said, the safest option is to annihilate <laughs> yep. the other forms yep. undiscovered, right? Like basically, that's the safest route to take. And uh, I remember this clearly, it's better in Chinese, but uh, the author basically said, every civilization is like a hunter hiding in darkness, looking mm -hmm. for targets to shoot first. Hence right, the dark that, that forest. Yeah. In the dark forest, right? That's it. That's how, that's the cosmic sociology, as he put it. And that's, Hansen said, one explanation to, to Fermi Paradox. Basically, any civilization that is advanced enough is hide itself, right? It is intentionally not be heard or discovered by you and uh, trying to destroy you, basically. And any dumb civilization that's advancing enough to echo, to make a noise, We'll get destroyed. Is, we'll get destroyed, right? So that's why it's silent in the dark forest. I think that one makes a lot of sense, honestly. <laughs> if, if, again, if the assumptions are all true, I think that one makes a lot of sense. And the only sort of silver lining to that is, again, all these assumptions are very human-centric. We just have no they idea are. what an alien life form would think. But if they think like us, then this a solution to the Fermi paradox would be an excellent one. If they don't think like us, which I think would be more interesting, because that would make us some of the most dangerous species alive in the universe, because it is our genuine belief that we have no option but to completely annihilate any civilization we come across. We yeah. would be the most brutal civilization in the universe. I mean, hopefully, like, you know, other beings or aliens or whatever are just so far advanced from us. And who knows, maybe we'll get there to get over this. Maybe there is like a extremely collaborative way of everyone all getting along. And because again, our biases and our humanity, we just don't see it. I think the, um, the contra argument I have for Dark Forest is the fact that we don't really know what the universe is, right? Like we, for the longest time we thought the universe is slowing down because there is a explosion in the beginning, mm -hmm. right? And things are should be cooling down now, right? But it's actually accelerating farther and mm -hmm. further away. And we come up with this thing called dark energy, right? right. Which basically is a catch-all phrase saying, we don't really know shit about the universe, yeah. right? So what is this, this dark energy behind the scene, right? What is pushing the universe actually accelerating apart and seemingly doesn't stop with the energy it has, right? That could actually be the shining beam within a dark forest, in my opinion, because that's a different prime mover that is that is pushing the universe as we know it, right? So basically this unknown actually gives me hope that we're not in a dark forest. That's well put. That makes sense. Yeah, like we know so little about the universe, right? The dark matter is what, 80 or something percent of all of the mass. So basically, we don't understand where 80 plus percent of the gravity in the universe is coming from. Right. And then we don't understand like what 90 percent of all energy, mass energy is in the universe. We call it dark energy. Like we have a very incomplete picture of what the universe really is. Man, even even some of the things that like space time and like time dilation, and all that good stuff just is like, 
man, things can be operating on such a level that we just don't have the ability to understand. I think that's something that's pretty striking as well. Yeah, I mean, um, special relativity is, is, is very interesting, right? Like that's, um, when, I, when I studied physics back in college, uh, I was always thought of special relativity as this uh, kind of framework change. So in, mm-hmm. in, in Newtonian physics, physics, which is the one I like, <laughs> uh, back in the good old days where everything's figured out, um, Time is the all-powerful God presence right. in every single frame, right? That's the basically there's a super clock that's syncing every frame, right, across different yeah. realities, right? Time is the God, but then in special reality, basically light becomes the measurement, right? There's no God, there's no clock sinker across different systems now, right? You have to obey this absolute limit that uh, light is the thing you cannot cross, right? So basically, you know, now every frame is not automatically synced. That's how I thought of the proposal of speciality. And that's a huge mind shift and really yeah. fucked everything up, in my opinion. <laughs> Dude, and then you think about things like quantum entanglement and you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. If, if there is some sort of like alien being that like, I, knowing what we know about special relativity, quantum entanglement, I don't think it's that far of a leap to also believe that we're not going to be able to understand everything about the universe. Like we're going to try, but the, again, there might just be things that we can't sense or we can't detect or we can't, we can find evidence of these things, but we're never going to be able to like see it. And maybe there is some like extra dimensional being that can anyways yeah maybe we're all just uh characters on a reality tv show for some higher being that's enjoying you know wow they discovered quantum entanglement it'd be like us watching animal planet and there's like a monkey with a stick and that's like hammering something open and we're just like and this monkey has discovered tool use right david attenborough's voice would come on there's the whole thing we're all living in a simulation by some bigger being right (laughs) like they're just again they're just having fun right or just ourselves yeah. 2,000 years from now, right? Yeah, we're just the ancestor simulation, simulation hypothesis, yeah. right? Yeah. We're running this yeah. to understand where we came from, and we're one of the countless iterations of this trying to simulate a past. Yeah. All right, with that uplifting note, let's dive into the last question. So what do you think the future hold for us, right? Feels like we're in a weird moment mm-hmm. of the century. There are wars going on, conflicts everywhere pandemic still ongoing or doesn't ever exist depends on where you lie on the spectrum looming recessions are you still hopeful yeah absolutely look it's this is nothing that hasn't happened before and i I do believe that we've yeah we've learned from the past right after the great depression there's never been something as bad right we've seen the run-up to world war one and world war two and there there are things in place to help prevent that now nothing is infallible but i do believe that we've learned enough from history i, I you know if the wrong person got their hands on technology bad things would happen i think overall like we we are doing a much better job right like the quality of life of any given person today is way better than it was 200 300 even 100 years ago right so i think in general i i think things will be okay now there there might be a lot of conflict in in our near future right like climate change is i believe it's a real thing i think most people (laughs) should believe it's a real thing but that's very scary i think that's probably one of the biggest things that is scary about the future more than the ongoing political or the wars that are currently going on right i think all of this is probably going to pale in comparison to what happens when climate change actually does hit if it does hit we can't mitigate it before it gets really bad right? right um so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm generally hopeful. Like, I don't think humans are going to go extinct. I don't think we're going to end up in nuclear war, at least not now, right? But, yeah, there's going to be some tough things to get through. But overall, I think I believe in the resiliency of humans and humanity. So I think we're going to be okay. Being the cynical one, I want to push back a little bit. If you look at the data, I agree that generally our life is much better than 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I think it's safe to say it's better. But mm-hmm. what I'm gonna push back is if you zoom in, the concept of we're gonna get better life or better life quality, at least in terms of um, materialistic things that we can have, is a pretty new concept. If you ask somebody living in the mid-century Europe, right, that's not expectation. That's true. There's no guarantee that for that 100 year actually more than 100 years, much more than 100 years, your life is going to be better a decade from now, right? So could we be entering that lost century uh, as we know it? 
uh, man, see, I, I don't know, because look, if something terrible, awful were to happen, like the tools are on the table for the extinction of the human race, right? Like, I think that's one thing that's very different than before. We have the tools we need to destroy everything, mm -hmm. right? When the stakes are that high, I think people behave in different ways. And I think there, there's going to be some people who might like actively seek out the end of everything. But I think that's always going to be a small segment of everyone else. That's why I kind of have hope for the macro, right? Looking at like any you know 10-year period of time, yeah, I think there are going to be ups and downs. But I think in the grand scheme of things, things will trend in the right direction. Though I think you just made also a counterpoint to yourself, right? Which is we now have the ability to destroy everything as we know it. Yeah. And there's always a small fraction of people that actively seek the end of everything. And so arguably, you know, back in the day, the worst thing these people could have done is set every city on fire or something, right? And right. yeah, they'd kill a bunch of people, but most people would get away. They're, they don't have the tools to kill everyone. But if it just so happens that this tiny fraction of people were the ones that's in charge of the tools that could end everything, we now have that real risk that we never used to have. That is true. I, but man, I... At least thinking about like now and our current situation, I feel like the folks who don't want the end of everything are going to win out. Like, who knows what happens? Maybe there's like a brand new religion that gains traction, which is all about the destruction of everything. And uh, it's, it starts, you know, Have gaining you seen a Twitter? foothold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Elon's on it, though. You know, He's, He's not going to let that happen, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure this will age well with our listeners in the future. Either, either yeah. because Twitter takes over as a religion and we're burnt at the stake or... <laughs> Yeah, or Twitter implodes and people are like, what's Twitter? I hear if you pay $8 a month, like you're exempt from getting burnt at the stake. So That's true. You know. That's true. Subscribe yeah. to not die. Though, yeah, I think obviously there's a lot of risks. I think that's real. But I like the optimism, Kanan. I think deep down, I agree with that optimism. I think, look, like we're sitting down here having this conversation. We're all looking for more. Humans as a race and life in general, I think, are so defined by greed. And I say that in the most loving way. We're always looking to expand and grow and get more. Seed, I think you make a good point. Like 90 something percent of all known history has been defined by very slow progress, more cyclical life than expansionist. But I feel like it's a matter of time before it happens again, right? There's honestly a chance that this isn't even the first time around for intelligent life, even on earth, right? There are yeah, theories around how there could be lost civilizations. But I think if in general, you're asking what's in the deep future for intelligent life as we know it i think if it's not this iteration it's going to be the next i think the thing worrying for me is i think redalio talk about this in the book but basically we're very good at learning from our parents mistakes but not our grandparents we basically forget we already forgot about how shit it is to fight a wall because their opinions are not politically correct I, I refuse <laughs> yeah. to learn from them exactly I, I get what you're saying but at the same time like th there's never been a period of time where like we have so much access to all the his history right I think we're at that phase where like information is so readily available like y y I have to believe that there's enough right there's enough yeah. to help prevent any terrible things though again there's also a lot of noise like the SNR yeah. is like not good the signal to noise ratio on the internet <laughs> It's not True. great. Here's my dose of optimism. For me, so I'm a, what I call a rational pessimist. So I think, like you said, the worst case scenario is so brutal, right? Basically everything goes to zero, the reset button. So let's just not worry about it. <laughs> Cause that's not worth considering at all. Let's just yeah, assume that's not an option and keep making progress. Radioactive cockroaches, man. I'm rooting for those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On that note, going to wrap up the conversation. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Andrew. It's been great having you. Great to talk about the end of the world, man. It's a great conversation. Yeah, we started with aliens, talked about holograms, and the end of the world. Great. Yeah, looking forward to uh, more canon keys. Yeah. Hey, before we get to the end of the world, let's <laughs> hopefully we can get people into custom keywords. At least they can enjoy it, right, before yeah. the world ends. Makes sense.